Hi, I'm your host, Thomas, data scientist, data engineer, and you're listening Let's Talk AI. On this podcast, we receive experts to talk about their experience, visions, challenges, with no fear to go into technical details. If you're looking to learn more about AI and related subjects, you're at the right place to make yourself comfortable and enjoy. If you like this episode, please give us a review on your favorite streaming platform, such as Spotify or Apple Podcast. You can also find more content on my LinkedIn newsletter. Welcome everyone, welcome in this new episode. Today I'm with Aurimas Gritsionas. I hope I pronounced it well. Aurimas, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. Thank you. What about you? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Um, so Aurimas, let's uh, start this new podcast uh, and uh, welcome back on, on the Let's Talk AI podcast. We're super happy to be here together. Uh, we've, ha- we've been having a few feedbacks regarding some questions, Uh, of topics you wanted to discuss, so we'll take those into account uh, uh, speaking with Arimas. Um, So we were in our first call together, sharing a bit about your experience and and what you've achieved and what we could talk in this episode. And there are so many interesting things. So first of all, maybe to the people who doesn't know you, uh, could you describe yourself in a few words, in a few sentences? Ah, Okay, so as mentioned, I'm Arimas. And I've kind of live and breathe data, right? So I'm in a data world now for what, 11 years. So all of my professional experiences in data, of course, some of engineering there as well. So I've been doing uh, data analytics. I've been doing uh, data science, machine learning, data engineering, cloud engineering, MLOps engineering. And then also led some teams of data engineers, uh, data platform engineers and cloud engineers. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is me. I have two dogs. I have. Uh, oh. I'm. Yeah, I'm happily married to my wife. Uh, and what else? I kind of set aside the exercising part, but I uh, really loved to loved to do that, and I'm planning to get back to it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, what else? From personal thing, Re- really like reading books, but I do read some a lot of technical books. So uh-huh. some people would say too much. <laughs> <laughs> All right, awesome. That's a that's a great picture for anyone who didn't know you. Um, uh, what kind of dogs do you have? This <laughs> is the first question I want to go <laughs> that's, with. That's a very good question. So I have a Labrador and I have okay. a standard poodle. So if okay. you would imagine Labrador, then my poodle is uh, one and a half times bigger than the Labrador. Wow. Uh, <laughs> okay, that's a great way to start a podcast about AI, I think. Um, so let's dive a bit more towards AI. Um, may I ask you, what are you trying to achieve today in the field? Uh, I know that you are having your own company at the moment. So what are you trying to achieve and, and what do you do on a daily basis today? Yeah, so okay. So first of all, so I'm full-time employee in uh, Neptune AI. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not my company, but I also oh. do. Uh, I do have a side gig, let's call it. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll maybe start with uh, Neptune AI because uh, this is where I spend most of my day on. So it really connects to what uh, I like doing and what I was doing in my previous uh, jobs. So basically, Neptune AI is just not just, but it's a central piece of a MLOps stack. As okay. machine learning operations and it allows you to store your metadata in different ways and then display it 
collaborate on it and track it for reproducibility purposes and as well it provides a model registry now so that you can more easily connect your deployment model deployment pipelines to the rest of your MLOps stack. Mm -hmm. But looking a little bit broader, I really love the entire MLOps space. So uh, mm -hmm. the EEI does really fit very well into it. But uh, mm -hmm. again, I am more of a trying con to connect the entire stack mm -hmm. to the product and helping the companies that are the customers to mm -hmm. successful in it. And okay. my, my personal gig, which is really, I also really resonates with that as well. So I'm trying to actually educate uh, the community on these topics. So everything about data uh, and a little bit more, not just MLOps and machine learning, but data engineering as well. So mm. how to connect the full data lifecycle from the data creation till the actual product that mm. people see and that generates value for businesses. Awesome. So you have to, uh, to branch. I'll get back on the second one on the you yeah. sharing value. Um, uh, we will, uh, we will talk about, uh, what kind of topics do you approach and how do you approach same? Because this is super interesting and, and, um, but, uh, to, to come back in the matching, uh, MLOps, um, parts. So you mentioned that you've, you've, you've kind of done everything. You've been a, an engineer, cloud engineer. Um, you, you were a data scientist also at some points. Yes. Uh, and, uh, so you've done all of that. To, to the people who are listening, who are, for example, more into data engineer at the moment or more data scientist, I know uh, a lot of people like Joris, for example, he's a recovering data scientist. He was forced into data engineer. Yes. Um, so how, how would you explain in a few words matching uh, MLOps? And uh, yeah, that would be my first question. How would you describe uh, in a few words MLOps? So MLOps is described very differently if you would look at how people describe it today. Uh, but it's maybe sometimes it's because of uh, not being too deep into that because uh, MLOps essentially is a set of practices and not even, it's not even, a, it's not about tooling. It's not about uh, doing something in the field. It's about a set of practices that allow mm -hmm. you to more efficiently uh, bring value by delivering ML machine learning product from mm -hmm. the initiation to the actual production. Mm -hmm. uh, and it really covers a lot of things, e like things like tooling as well, things like processes, things like organizational structures, things like a cultural thing, because mm. uh, you need to have some of that in your company in order to efficiently actually promote MLOps practices. Hmm. All right. So, so let's say, because in, in the second episode of Let's Talk AI, I was talking with uh, Gustavo. And uh, uh, we, we kind of introduced MLOps and he was really uh, going into MLOps. Uh, you talk about tooling, data organization, uh, strategy. Um, so today in the company, um, how do you implement on a daily basis? Like how do you um, adapt the product and, and how does the product uh, gives value uh, using MLOp, MLOps? Uh. So first of all, uh, getting back to it again. So MLOps brings uh, value by deploying, efficiently deploying machine learning models. So machine mm -hmm. learning is what brings the value, right? So yes. very simple example, recommendation systems in your website that recommends yes. stuff to people and people are more likely to buy the stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So what MLOps brings to all of this is uh, how do you, usually how do you produce 
a large amount of machine learning models throughout the organization. So you could think horizontal scaling of models, not necessarily vertical, so not making one model better, but uh, having lots of them and efficiently iterating, experimenting on them, and then mm -hmm. with least amount of effort, moving them through the machine learning uh, pipeline and automatically deploying them into production as a service. So it could mm -hmm. be could be a request-response-based API, it could be a mm -hmm. the job, it could be a batch-based process. But how do you touch the system as little times as possible so that it automatically mm. deploys into the production? Yeah, so that's mm -hmm. what MLOps tries to solve. Could we, say, could we say that MLOps brings together the data engineers, the data scientists, and the machine learning engineer? Uh, in a sense, it does, because... Uh, when you think about uh, the MLOps uh, stack and tooling that uh, yes. allows you to do MLOps in an organization, you usually start from feature stores that basically connect uh, data engineers with either machine learning engineers and data scientists. Mm -hmm. And you end up with uh, some deployment uh, tooling which connects your machine learning engineers, your data scientists, and software engineers or operational operations engineers so basically, yeah, it allows you to connect all of it. Here. Hmm. It's, it does act as a glue <laughs> for everything. Hmm. I would agree with that statement. All right. So so we have uh, we understand better uh, MLOps. That was kind of the, the introduction towards uh, some questions that I have uh, uh, for this. And, and also uh, for some of you who are listening, we received some some questions and topics to to approach. So we'll talk a little bit more about machine learning. Uh, I would like to ask you uh, if that's okay. You, you let me know about a business perspective uh, mm -hmm. to to start approaching. Could you have like a business case, for example, in which uh, we could use this as an example of how your company adds value? Because you were a bit, just before you were you were. Um, mentioning, for example, having a website and recommendation systems. Mm -hmm. uh, could, could you have an application of a business case for people to understand better how MLOps, uh, like the, the pipeline, without like yeah. getting to... Sure. So we, can, we could even take recommendation system as an example. All right. It is very popular, actually, use case because you will find recommendation systems on almost every uh, e-commerce site, right? Yeah. So we could take it... Uh, as an example, and then maybe build out the entire MLOps lifecycle for that, right? If mm -hmm. that yeah, that works. sounds great. That sounds super fun. <laughs> okay, cool. So, for first of all, for, let's talk a little bit about recommendation system uh, design because mm -hmm. usually you would have usually would have two models, uh, maybe more, but you would have at least two machine learning models or something machine learning based. Mm -hmm. in that system because once you do a search in a website right you usually are searching let's say for clothes you would search for red boots or something right mm -hmm. and that would return to you possibly uh, tens of thousands of results if it's a big e-commerce right mm -hmm. so the first model is usually this uh, uh, unit uh, selection model right so mm -hmm. what what do you achieve so what are these uh, top, let's say, 10,000 items that you would yes. like to retrieve after you do a search. And then on top of that, you would plug in a more complicated model, which okay. uh, is usually called ranking model. And it allows you to, uh, on that smaller set of items, rank them 
so that you have the most uh, attractive ones at the very yes. top. So mm -hmm. it's at least two models in the system. Okay. So you mm -hmm. pass the items through the first one and then through the second one. So how MLOps helps in this. So first of all, usually you could work on these two problems as a separate, separate problems. So there would be most likely two different teams working on separate pieces of the system. Mm -hmm. uh, and when you're looking into MLOps pipeline, this is how it starts. So business comes up with the idea that we need to, well, have a recommendation system in our website because we don't mm -hmm. have anything. Usually, initially you do something really non-machine learning based. So you would have some rule based engines that uh, do that. And you would have that piece of technology as your baseline. So you want to improve it with introducing some machine learning elements to it, right? Mm -hmm. So then you hire some data scientists uh, or machine learning engineers to do that. So what we would do, we would extract some data from, uh, so now a good question would be, would be a good question time to ask, are we talking about already a efficient MLOP system or a something that is not yet <laughs> MLOP based? Maybe let's call it, let's try and do efficient MLOP system. Okay, what is the difference between two? So once you, usually once you start uh, with uh, machine learning, you really don't have any MLOps practices in place. So you would okay. uh, do everything in your experimentation environment. So imagine notebooks, Jupyter notebooks, you extract yes. some data, you mm -hmm. do some validation, you do some exploratory analysis on top of it, you do some transformations, you test a few maybe models that can produce the result. Mm -hmm. uh, you would pick the best one and then you just store it somewhere in, let's say, S3 or any other object storage for your uh, software engineers to pick up and put yes. it inside of your website application, mm -hmm. right? When you, but it's it's not scalable. It's not uh, traceable back. It's uh, It has uh, a lot of bad things in that system. <laughs> so when you introduce MLOps, uh, so I'll try to maybe uh, say, what, in my opinion, is the correct <laughs> way to structure everything, right? Yes. So usually you have, uh, as initial touch point, you have a feature store. So feature store is something that is already mounted on top of your, diff uh, on your different um, data storage. It okay. Would be, for example, a data warehouse. And in data warehouse, you would have your data mart that is specifically prepared for machine learning use cases. So you could have mm. user data there, you could have your item data there, etc. So you mount a feature store on top of it and feature store extracts that data from the feature, sorry, from the data marts periodically, mm -hmm. let's say. And then in your feature store system, you define those feature transformations. So usually you wanna, very simple example here is that you wanna transform your all of your features into numbers, right? Because machine learning models only understand numbers. You have to train yes. on numbers and you need to serve mm -hmm. numbers, right? So you do that uh, in machine learning system and then you expose those uh, computed features to the machine learning engineers and data scientists, right? Mm -hmm. So they would be responsible for the transformations themselves as well, but they would already get transformed features from the system. Mm -hmm. So then you... Uh, so this is you, this is uh, the stars you mentioned, right? Yeah, you okay. usually start at, at this point in time. So okay, this is perfect. how you expose data to your machine learning systems, right? Awesome. Yes, of course. <laughs> and then, uh, of course, you would uh, connect initially with your uh, notebooks to this data. You would do the same things, but you would do without a feature store. Mm -hmm. Once you see that you have something 
going on that you could maybe deploy, then this is the moment in time where a machine learning pipeline comes into play and you want to orchestrate it basically. So you have a mm -hmm. orchestrator, it could be Airflow. Yes. It could be something more machine learning specific, but let's say it's just Airflow, right? Yes. And uh, it would have uh, the same steps that you do have in your experimentation environment. So extract data, validate it, transform it if needed additionally, uh, log some uh, profiles of it, track everything in experiment tracking system, mm -hmm. uh, train the model, validate the model, test the model on the holdout data set, mm -hmm. and put the model into a model registry. So there are already two elements that are not present in the initial system, three elements that are not present mm -hmm. in the initial system. So that's a feature store, that's machine learning pipeline, which is orchestrated, and that is a model, model registry or model store where you actually store all of your models. Mm -hmm. And this already, having all of this, already allows you to reproduce your experiment in the future if you wanted to, because you have uh, tracked what data you use to train the model, you have tracked your random seeds that you put into your model. Mm -hmm. You you track your hyperparameters that were the best ones in your model. Uh, you track the model artifact, right? Mm. And then and what, what, when you say you, you track on, on this point, uh, what do you mean by tracking? Is it uh, like, for example, uh, with the star feature, you have uh, all the, the values or is it because you have the star feature plus the orchestrator that you are like you, in your pipeline, the parameters, for example, in Airflow allow you to like keep all those features, those parameters, those hyper, um, like the fine tuning you've done, and, and like how does it work? What what do you mean by that? Uh, so it really doesn't matter on what uh, orchestrator you run your experiments, right? On uh, so the thing that matters is that you can track the actual pipeline execution, right? So in Airflow, that would be uh, a DAG run ID, right? So mm. you need to know specifically which uh, DAG run uh, produced all of the metadata. And then yeah. per step, so per step, you it really depends on what kind of experiment tracking you're using. Uh, but I think that the good, one, good ones allow you flexibility, so you can very easily plug those as libraries into your training code. Mm -hmm. Just ship the metadata that is needed for reproducibility and analysis as well mm -hmm. tracking system. So it could be your accuracy, it could be your loss rate, etc. Mm -hmm. Anything that you need are interested in. If it's a, a computer vision problem, you would uh, even track images. Uh, if it's a video, you could track a image series, right? Mm -hmm. If uh, if there is a like bounding boxes, that if you're trying to do the object detection, you might as well track those. Right, so to analyze the performance of your model mm. efficiently in the experiment tracking system, so it has to. It usually has a UI where you can log in and do your uh, analysis yeah. on the efficiency of your models. Right. All right. All right. So and and once we are at this point, because I want to ask about scalability uh, of those tools. Yeah. Uh, but but when you, we are at this point and we have this tracking. Is there another step after that? Like, or can we directly implement those models into, for example, or example was the website uh, yeah, so and having a recommendation system? I can give a little bit of background on that as well. So you already have, a, let's say, a model registry 
where yeah. your models are stored. Usually, mm -hmm. very oftenly, uh, you don't point to these artifacts uh, directly from production. Mm -hmm. So you would build, pre-build a uh, container that mm -hmm. would uh, host your code that is needed to run the model and the model itself already in that container. So you can just deploy it straight to the prod. Mm -hmm. uh, it would most likely the code itself would also have some business logic in it. So you mm -hmm. have some pre-processing before data okay. goes into the model uh, binary, okay. and then you might do some business logic even after that. Okay. And uh, imagine you already have a container ready to be deployed. Then you could hook up your system uh, to a deployment pipeline. So you could, let's okay. say, have a... In model registries, you usually have a model and you have lots of model versions for that specific model. So let's say it's a uh, pre-ranking model, right? So the initial model, you can have different versions for it. Some of the versions will be better than others. And they also have a state assigned to them. So it could be production, staging, dev, archive, etc. You could have a webhook, uh, which basically triggers once yes. you uh, switch your state from uh, dev to prod, for example, mm. or, or staging to prod, and then it kicks up off the deployment pipeline automatically. Mm. And the deployment pipeline will vary significantly depending on what kind of system you're deploying your models in. Let's mm. say let's say it is a Kubernetes cluster that mm -hmm. deploys your machine learning model as a well deployment in Kubernetes. Right? Mm -hmm. So it could be uh, it could be a pipeline which basically does and imagine that you have uh, your Git ops correctly set up. So you have Argo CD running in mm -hmm. your Kubernetes cluster. It's pointing to your repository. Then this deployment pipeline could do a pull request to that repository, just change the uh, container, uh, mm -hmm. not the container, but image version, Yes, which needs to be deployed in Kubernetes. And either automatically, usually it's not automatically, but uh, you would ping a person who would review that pull request, and if everything's fine, he, he approves that, and you deploy a new container version to your Kubernetes cluster. And that okay. container already serves uh, the use case. So basically, it can, hmm. once a user does a request to that API, that API mm -hmm. knows uh, which features you need to fetch from a feature store, uh, and it gives back your results, right? Probably list of uh, objects that you want to return as an initial yes. search result, right? <laughs> yes, yes, totally. And you mentioned about pull requests, so, so I might want uh, to, to, to ask you a bit um, uh, about pull requests and, and how to work as a team on a data project. But um, but first of all, thank you for sharing uh, all this uh, all this value. Um, it's not every day that we can have um, that we can have uh, such uh, great insights. I mean, of course, there are a lot of uh, MLOps courses online that will explain everything, but uh, I feel like I followed you through the process and, and now I have uh, I have more value. I want you to get back on the scalability of the mm -hmm. tools that we use. Um, so regarding, um, like, I mean, the scalability, the main problem I would assume would be uh, if we have on-prem data because if everything is in the cloud we can just pay for more resources based on the specific uh, mm -hmm. tools but uh, how would you approach a data project that will start with like for for example uh, every month 50 millions rows more um and, and through time uh how would you approach a problem like that and, and how does it impact uh, the mlops process and what we just described 
So you're referring to training the model or serving the model? Like uh, for serving so, the model, it's the traffic that is uh, the scaling factor, right? So how many uh -huh. users you have? Yes. For, for the training part, yes. So it's the data set size that, that matters. So maybe let's start. Mm -hmm. Could we, could we, for example, train a model with a, with a data set? And if we're very happy with the accuracy, um, uh, we, we won't train it again. Or uh, how do you approach retraining a model? And like what KPIs or, or what approach, what framework do you use sorry, to define um, when to retrain a model? Uh, okay, so this is the, probably one of the hardest questions because uh, different companies do it differently. Mm. Um, I've seen it done. Actually, usually uh, quite a lot of, uh, I, I believe that quite a lot of companies uh, find the process of identifying when you should when you should retrain your model a lot harder than just going with retraining it every week, for example. Mm. Uh, because okay. understanding when you need to retrain sometimes it's just uh, not worth it. Yes. So yeah, because usually how I also seen it done, you would use not the entire data set to train your model. But let's mm. say you are e-commerce, so you would maybe take the last seven days or the last month worth mm -hmm. of data. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's increasing in size because you expect your user base to grow, right? Mm -hmm. but, uh, yeah. That's how you would do it. You, you could okay. just schedule it to retrain either mm. daily, either, either weekly or monthly. And in that mm -hmm. way, you will usually solve for things like feature drifts and uh, concept drifts, right? Mm -hmm. Not concept drifts, but feature drifts more. Right? Okay. Okay. Well, thanks a lot for all the value. I will not okay. ask okay. you... But, but, but maybe uh, getting back a little bit back to it. So, of course, you would want to, in a very uh, robust MLOps system, you would want to monitor feature drifts, concept drifts, or just uh, running uh, sanity checks, let's say, or every day, for example, yes. if you have mm -hmm. a system which uh, gives you really quick feedback, you could run your models in prod for a day, mm -hmm. so you will get your predictions, then you could generate, uh, not generate, but retrieve uh, ground truths for some of them, and then you can just check uh, if your accuracy or other F1 metrics or whatever metrics mm -hmm. are good, still good enough daily mm -hmm. and monitor in, in that way. And then mm. once you see some something that is not desirable, you can then trigger a tre retraining. Okay. okay. And when it comes to scalability from another side, like uh, how do you deal with additional 500,000 rows and eventually 5 million rows per day if your business scales, mm. then there are definitely uh, distributed training frameworks for that, right? So you can train your models on Spark, hmm. for example. Yeah.
So now that uh, I've heard a few tools and, 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 and you enhance the overall process of uh, MLOps and, and some, some distinctions to, to do that are important, uh, could you give us maybe a few tools uh, that you would consider using um, f with your experience? Okay, so yeah, so for feature stores, uh, there are, I would say, few that you can choose from. There are not that many players in the field, okay, but uh, okay. if it's open source, fully open source, definitely okay. you will probably go for Feast. But then there are commercial players like uh, Tecton, Hopsworks, and now okay. Featureform as well. Mm -hmm. You know that Featureform also has some open source, I think, offering. Uh, when it comes to pipeline orchestration, definitely uh, there are cloud offerings like SageMaker pipelines, Vertex AI pipelines. Uh, then yeah. you could use Airflow, there is Kubeflow. But then again, Vertex AI pipelines is managed Kubeflow, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, there is ZenML, a very good, uh, very new player in, not not super new, few years, but uh, it tries to streamline uh, basically usage of our MLOps tools and put yes. everything into pipeline, right? It okay. allows you to, for example, use Airflow as an orchestrator and then some other frameworks for different pieces of the pipeline. Mm -hmm. With a single interface that okay. we provide. Uh, then, when it comes to experiment tracking, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm a bi biased here a little bit, right? So, <laughs> of course, there is MLflow, the mostly popular one, and we are at Neptune, I think, are doing quite a good job. Mm -hmm. Model registries, uh, again, uh, Airflow, MLflow, uh, cloud offerings do have mm. their own, and Neptune, right? Yes, mm -hmm. an offering. Uh, when it comes to deployment uh, of models themselves, there are definitely choices like Selden Core, TF Serving, uh, sorry, TF Serving, and then uh, Kubeflow Serving and similar. So mm -hmm. the tooling space is pretty <laughs> vast, I would say. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so usually you it will really depend on your organizational structure. It's not like all every tool of course, one tool would fill for fit everything that you want. To of do. course, of course. Then uh, the first thing is to understand uh, what is there, and then build uh, build from this. Okay, so this is a lot of uh, a lot of value for everyone uh, who are interested uh, in MLOps, and I'm super happy and thank you uh, for for sharing all this value. I might want uh, to take a step back here um, um, and ask you about your journey as a data scientist because. You mentioned that you have 11 years of career at the moment of the episode. Um, and I'm thinking to some people who are new in the field, for example, who have two, three years of experience and how are approaching the, the data scientist role, the data engineer role, the machine learning engineer role, MLOps roles, which is becoming more and more. Uh, lately in one episode, we talked about the, the business scientist role, which is an hybrid between a uh, uh, business analyst and data scientist. So I haven't, I haven't yet heard about that. One. You haven't? <laughs> <laughs> I discussed it with, uh, with uh, Gus uh, Ries on the last episode uh, that we recorded. Um, but um, so based on that, if I would ask you today, um, if you would be recruiting in your team, mm -hmm. uh, let's do it for the data scientist and the data engineer. What would you expect to be like the qualities, uh, the, the qualities and, and the tools of the data scientist to, to be known or 
or what knowledge uh, would you test the person on? Could I could I ask you this question? Yeah, let's let's try and figure out it, figure it out together, right? <laughs> uh, I wasn't really hiring for data scientists specifically, but I could uh, come up with a list of things that I would like to see. So. The role of data scientists changed quite a lot throughout the years, right? So now mm -hmm. data scientists definitely need to be really business focused. So they need to understand business problems uh, and what we actually want to solve before mm -hmm. they start jumping into the models and tooling. Yeah. Uh, of course, high level. Okay. So we, if we are talking about uh, entry level data scientists, then high level knowledge of uh, machine learning models and the concepts themselves are definitely something you would look for, right? Mm. And, uh, mm -hmm. When it comes to tooling, naturally, it's Python, right? Python, Jupyter mm -hmm. Notebook, SQL. SQL becoming a lot more important in the more we move into the current mm -hmm. time, right? Because uh, now data scientists are definitely expected to do exploratory data analysis in data warehouses or data mm -hmm. lakes themselves. So it's not like you will get data pre-processed for you and you're just running your machine learning training and yeah. right? <laughs> yes. And the connection between what do you search for and uh -huh. what business value you are trying to actually bring, mm -hmm. super important, right? Then stakeholder yeah. management because, uh, well, you will be communicating majority, not majority, but a lot of your day-to-day, uh, -day, right? Because mm -hmm. you want to yeah, sell the value that you're, you're providing. Mm -hmm. And then comes the machine learning training part. <laughs> so what do you actually use to solve a problem? And uh, oh, not yeah. jumping to a machine learning uh, as a first option is also valuable. Like uh, initially, maybe data scientists were thought of as a pure machine learning machines, right? But now if you are uh, if you can solve a problem with just uh, analytical tools and however not using machine learning, it's maybe even more valuable than actually training hmm. a machine learning model and using it. When you say analytical tools, do you refer as, for example, a linear regression or? No, no, that's or... already a machine learning. Yeah, that's <laughs> what I thought. So no, what, no, what do we... you mean? Just like, for example, a KPI, like a, like a mean, like a... Like no, no, a... Uh, more of a, if you can implement this, if you can solve this problem by just uh, doing some rule-based Stuff, right that you don't well, use machine learning to yeah. implement then okay. just do it don't go for machine learning just because you want to do it right uh, okay. sometimes uh, it will bring even more okay maybe more accuracy than machine learning. okay okay so let's say i have a business problem and and uh, i have my data set and i've run through uh, important kpis and i find a way to calculate them and then i have a great visual to to see those kpis and just kpis themselves uh, solve the problem. No needs to to yeah. to go from from machine learning. That would be what you referred to, right? Yeah, yeah. But definitely, uh, uh, there are problems. There are lots of problems that will will require machine learning in nowadays. So, hmm. yeah. But you can probably see the you can probably see that it's a lot about the personality and the business acumen and understanding business problems rather mm -hmm. than pure technical role. Yeah. And when it comes to data engineering, it's a little bit different, right? Data engineers mm. are... <laughs> but that's a perfect transition. Would you, would you mind doing the same exercise for a data engineer? Yeah, so there are 
probably a few types of data engineers, the one, ones that are closer to the business, ones that are less close to the business. So uh -huh. even in the recent years, there is this new role, analytical engineer, right? So analytical engineer is a mix of data engineer and data analyst. Okay. Basically, it's a person who mostly works in a data warehouse and communicates with uh, business stakeholders and mm -hmm. also at the same time builds data models in the data warehouse to answer those questions. So those mm -hmm. business problems. So for such a person, uh, usually it's a mix of data engineering and machine and sorry, and data analytics skill sets. So as well, a very strong business focus, but then you turn to the modern data stack, which is basically, uh, usually a cloud data warehouse, right? And, uh, the tool like dbt to glue everything together into mm. transformations on top of it so i from an analytical engineer i would expect uh, knowledge either very strong knowledge of just sql if you have dbt in your company then dbt as well plus mm -hmm. business side right okay okay then it comes to uh, a, a regular data engineer so the one which uh, is the or let's call it original data engineer so all right. more, more technical data engineer uh, that which is now moving more towards the software engineering side, little by little. So I do expect uh, there eventually to be a split where data engineers either move to analytical engineering or decide to move closer to software engineers. Uh, so this is where you will need to know distributed compute more deeply. So you could be working directly with Spark yourself or any or other uh, distributed frameworks. Then. Mm naturally SQL because now most of uh, these distributed compute frameworks also provide SQL interfaces and people want to write SQL rather than just using uh, program like native programming languages, even though mm -hmm. I'm more on the, on the side of using native programming languages because these are more easily uh, testable and uh, more prod ready, let's call it, right? Uh, so then uh, things like uh, real-time processing come in, so stream processing. Yeah. Okay. If you know some stream processing framework, that's uh, really Kafka. Cool. Kafka is uh, a stream processing, not stream processing framework. It's more of a uh, distributed log on which you can mount the stream processing framework like Flink okay. or Spark streaming. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, Adobe had another one, right? Uh, of uh, stream processing. I know that there's Kafka streams. There's Kafka. Kafka. Um, yeah, Kafka strings. That sounds familiar. There's, there's, uh, also, there's also, of course, Storm. Mm. Uh, but yeah, these are uh, more or less known ones, right? All right. So many tools. Well, thanks a lot for, for sharing all this value. I'm sure this will help uh, some data scientists, data engineers that are here. One, one more maybe thing is integrations, oh, right? So you are working on integrating uh, third party, not necessarily third party, but maybe internal systems as well with the data layer. So how to push data from, let's say, a database to mm. either directly into object storage or a real-time queue. Mm. And of yeah. course, uh, external systems like Salesforce and uh, other CRM tools and similar, how do you connect them to your data systems, right? Right. Of, course, they, of course, then data modeling comes into play. So there are lots of things you need to know, but- uh... Of course, <laughs> but that's what's exciting about it. It is like, uh, it is, um... It has truly this uh, 
always think to always like to think sorry about uh, all of this as Legos and how everything comes to to one place and and how to find the best optimization based on what we have at the beginning the data architecture um, um, making the distinction between data architecture and data engineer is one thing also that could be interesting to discuss. Um, that being said, I would like to ask uh, you a bit more about your presence online, uh, because I know you have your newsletter um, and you're sharing so much value there. Um, so I recommend everyone listening, if you want to really get your hands into data and have pro tips, uh, check out uh, the newsletter of Audimas. Um, for those who aren't subscribed yet to, to your newsletter, um, I think it could be interesting to ask you about um, why did you start sharing your journey and what are the main topics you tend to share about? And maybe at the end, if we can have a few insights of uh, top things that you've shared, it could really benefit to all of us. So, so yeah, can you start with your journey on, the, on, on LinkedIn, for example? Yeah, sure, sure. So actually I started... The first post I did, I think it was now already 10 months ago or nine months ago. Okay. Like the first actual post where I had an intention to do some regular posting and teaching people about subjects that I mm -hmm. uh, thought important. Um, yeah, so I didn't have that much following back then. I had uh, 1,300, I think, followers when I started. Mm -hmm. And uh, initial ones were more of a about uh, team structures, why do you need the ML platform team, which mm. I believe is very important, but it's definitely not what uh, took my following numbers off, <laughs> right? So I did that for a few months and then I started doing some more technical posts. So explaining fundamental concepts around machine learning and data engineering and maybe storage, some storage systems, and people started liking them and I'm really uh, thankful to everyone who did. <laughs> and uh, I got some uh, nice amount of followers on LinkedIn. But uh, then I, uh, in a few weeks after I started to actually do this more of technical deep dives, uh, people started saving, of course, those posts in LinkedIn. And then I got a few requests uh, of like, how can I read them? How do how can I browse through the archive? LinkedIn is not a good platform for that. So actually, that's when I decided to do a newsletter. And mind if you would look at the current state of my newsletter, it's just my LinkedIn posts bundled into a single package and sent out weekly. Hmm. But it's definitely not uh, how it will be in the future. Part of it will continue to be this, but uh, not all of it. Mm -hmm. uh, so topics I talk about now, it's. Uh, machine learning, MLOps, and data engineering focused mainly. And uh, the entire, let's say, data stack architecture, so end-to-end -end data stacks and how you deliver, deliver value from the beginning, from mm -hmm. the data generation till the actual uh, model in production. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and then I zoom in into specific parts of it and then try to explain them in more deeper fashion. Mm -hmm. And that's what I do now, but I do plan to also do some long form content very soon. And I say okay. long form, I mean, not just the LinkedIn post because most of my posts that are on LinkedIn is at the lim character limits of how many characters are allowed on LinkedIn. So there's also mm -hmm. a very, very limited amount of knowledge I could 
put into those. So I'm planning to do some long forms and uh, not hmm. send them, uh, not send them out in, through LinkedIn, but make them exclusive on the newsletter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can also uh, always uh, in the future, and and this is something we will uh, we will do in Let's Talk AI. Uh, get uh, direct questions from your subscribers and do some little 30 minutes lives where I, I will, I will, i'm planning to do that as well maybe uh, cool uh, monthly or every two weeks but uh, for that you still need to like uh, establish a community <laughs> yeah and have a yeah and the back and forth and this is really what we try to do at stock ai and, and and we're super happy to to see some messages where we we see that uh, we are adding value we get requests of specific subjects to approach. For example, today we talked a lot about MLOps and machine learning, and uh, this is this have been a, a request. Uh, so, um, so that's super uh, insightful. Um, so, thanks, thanks a lot for sharing all of this. And uh, very, 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 very interesting point you touched here, right? So, like, without the people that read uh, my my content, like, I'm nothing, right? Because I don't really, uh, it doesn't bring value to me. So. Only if I can teach people something and mm. things that they care about, does it really bring value to me as well? Because I, mm. I'm doing something important. Right? Yeah. So that's. I'm thinking. I'm thinking about um, sharing value mm-hmm. uh, in the in the in the workspace. So so you have a community online and you try to add value uh, and share your value and your knowledge and your expertise uh, and. Uh, and in the end, this ends up helping a lot of uh, very curious people that are at earlier stage of their career. Um, but uh, I always think of uh, mentoring uh, in the in, in the workspace because a lot of the time, many of us will only have the people in the company to share with, and uh, a lot of us will try to find mentors or guidance into the company and, and, and not outside or, or with uh, external people. So. So how do you approach uh, teaching and, and sharing the value uh, that you've acquired through your career uh, on your company, on the people in your team? Uh, and how do you approach mentoring for yourself? Ah, okay, so I spent a lot of time uh, just uh, talking with uh, people that I've worked with. So I was a team lead. I was a team lead for several teams. Definitely, I think that... Uh, the most value you bring is uh, just speaking with people, play, placing them in the correct projects so that you can apply uh, what you teach to them. And uh, of course, providing correct resources so that we can uh, develop independently from yourself, right? So mm-hmm. you read what uh, maybe courses to take, but courses are not uh, like there are lots of courses, but uh, I don't think that this, it's it, very, it has to be a good course. To take right, mm-hmm. <laughs> there, because there are too many, and it's very easy to uh, yeah get into into the wrong one. Yeah, but I believe that uh, allowing people to do to work independently, not mm-hmm. overly micromanaging them, is a key to an employee's success because that's how people learn. If you micromanage uh, your employees, that's definitely neither brings value to you, nor to them, nor mm. to the results that will be produced. So give them a good knowledge, 
put, place them into the correct uh, projects that they can succeed in, give them freedom, <laughs> uh, teach them how to take uh, uh, ownership of that freedom. And I think mm -hmm. we are good to go. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Because how do you approach? That's also, by, by the way, learning uh, people to fish and not giving them the fish, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And this is so important because the, the lessons and the experience is in is in this specific part where you don't show people how to do it, but you give them tools to learn by themselves, to, to be able to achieve a specific task. And you just provide guidance. Like when you're fishing, just go a little bit on the right, just pull a little bit more. And uh, I don't know why I'm doing fishing analogies, but anyway, <laughs> I think it's pretty clear. Um, and about mentoring for you, because this is something I always uh, like to ask. We always tend to ask people who have a lot of experience, how do they mentor others? But how do you find mentors for yourself and, and how do you keep improving uh, on your journey? Yeah, so uh, I, I would definitely need to be better at this. Uh, so in my uh, professional career, I had good mentors, but uh, definitely not uh, throughout the life cycle. Mm. Uh, not throughout the entire of my career. So I was very lucky to get a very strong mentor when I was in a leadership role. So mm -hmm. I was uh, leading several teams. Uh, mm -hmm. so I was very lucky there. But when it comes to, I would say, technical leadership, like uh, leading a single team of technical individuals, I wouldn't say that I was lucky at that point in time. So I had to learn quite a lot of myself. And I definitely, yeah, I, I wasn't a good team lead initially. I know if I was a good team lead uh, in my later career, but uh, hopefully so. But initially, mm. not a good team lead. And I did mistakes. I learned from them. And that's how I <laughs> grew, mm. I would say. Mm. On, the, on the episode with Adam Sroka, um, he shared the same insights. Um, he, he learned leadership the hard way, even though he had some guidance. He learned it the hard way in... in and he, he told me he was very, very bad at the beginning. I might yeah. have uh, one very too much. <laughs> I mean, he told me that it was difficult at the beginning, basically. And I mean, uh, people, Like people coming from uh, individual contributors straight to the leadership roles. Yeah, they need mentorship. They definitely need mm. good mentors. And uh, I don't think there are many in the industry mm -hmm. because if you're in the tech company, and it's not like these big tech companies. I would imagine that in uh, like Facebooks and uh, Amazon, etc., you would get the mentorship. But in these startups, right, where mm. everyone is technically uh, technical at the beginning, and those people then become team leads, and they never had team lead experience. So mm. if we start scaling, if you don't bring new leadership talent into the company, mm. there's no one to actually mentor you. Right. Mm. Not that uh, good situation to be yeah. in. Yeah. And this might be one of the reasons where a lot of people who got Microsoft, um, AWS, Meta, uh, this is, this might be one of the reasons where we can see those people in the startups after and they're staying to big leadership roles because they might have this experience at some point. Um, but would you say also that, for example, for top 50 Forbes AI startups uh, we can find, like for big AI startups or big startups in general, we can find this kind of uh, of leadership or is it is it less uh, in the big tech? Big, uh, big tech no, no, uh, that's what, exactly what I meant. But I think that mm -hmm. these big, big tech 
giants there should be more quality leadership mm. small, okay the small ones uh, as mentioned you start only with technical people then those technical people become managers without any skill set or experience and so on and so on right and in big companies like facebook's like metas and amazons we are more probably already established good practices when it comes to mm. leadership right yeah yeah i understand um okay great great so so this is about the mentoring section how you learned how you improve um i would have one questions uh, regarding maybe uh, one last question before asking uh, the the questions I, I always ask uh, in the episode uh, i already asked you about how do you improve yourself uh, the two last questions of the episode should be um how can people reach out learn more about you of course we'll put the newsletter uh, in the description and, and a message for the audience but uh before um uh, getting into this i would like to ask you about the future of the field um what is your perspective on how mlops machine learning and all those data roles, uh, data engineer, data scientist, machine learning engineer, how the field for you is going to evolve through time in the, for example, 10 next years? Oh, wow, 10, in text, 10 next years. <laughs> the industry is moving <laughs> so fast with all of these uh, foundational models now uh, being released, right? Mm -hmm. But I don't think that uh, it will not uh, change like the basic models for a quite long time in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, there will be these foundational models, but then there will be all of these specialized models that uh, are, I think, he, at least here to stay for the next five years, right? at least. And uh, MLOps will be needed here. Uh, what I think maybe will happen. So we now have a MLOps space completely fragmented. Like there is a specific tool for a very small problem uh, and then you glue everything into a single hole. There are just too many tools. I think that I do believe that uh, the entire MLOps uh, probably lifecycle could be split into three, three or two parts, bigger parts uh, that will come into like managed bundles of capabilities. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not a fan of end-to-end uh, -end machine learning platforms because yeah, they are usually under the, the under delivering in a single. Uh, piece of the technology, for example. Okay. Right? Mm -hmm. So I think that it's best to split the entire lifecycle into three parts. There will definitely be feature, uh, feature platform part, so mm -hmm. feature stores, etc. But a little bit uh, broader, like uh, how do you manage your data sets? How do you do? How do you share them throughout the organization? Um, but it shouldn't probably reach out more. Maybe into the deployment model, deployment side, maybe. Right. Then definitely mm. there will be observability tools, and here uh, day two monitoring comes in. So once the model is deployed, uh, what do you do there? Right. Mm. So then there will be there is this uh, experiment tracking systems and model registries. So probably these could expand a little bit into okay. This. Mm -hmm. When it comes to so this is when it, what when it comes to MLOps tooling, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Uh, All right. When it comes to machine learning itself, there are still, I think, a lot of problems to solve when it comes to simple models. Mm -hmm. In 10 years, oh man, in 10 years, maybe no one will be uh, doing anything, right? <laughs> 10 years is a long time. And uh, maybe there will be no 
data scientists, maybe there will be no software engineers anymore. <laughs> but don't you think, don't you think it is, uh, in a way it is, uh, like the, the job today that like the value of a data scientist, you described it very well, because the, the, there is a, a more and more business part into it and like interpreting the numbers and, and for example, I was speaking, um, with, uh, Vin Vashista and he explained me like how, uh, he was helping people to, um, to implement machine learning as one more member in the team. So do you believe like, um, like the, the, the interior, the, those roles could like totally disappear or would you consider more like, um, human machine team where human enhance the output of the values, even though, uh, it will be less, uh, more and more easier to, to, to build all these systems because, uh, everything will be automated. Okay, so but now we are talking ten years in the future, right? Not two, <laughs> not ten, three, ten five, years, not let's, five, ten, ten, ten years. Let's go ten years. <laughs> so let's say in ten years everything is covered by uh, these like foundational models or something. Mm. Maybe even more, not ten years. Uh, yeah, hard to say. So there will definitely need to be uh, humans in the loop in some way, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, how it will look like. I, I don't know. <laughs> it's really... <laughs> all right, all right. As, uh, I won't yeah, uh, push it. It. It, will, it will definitely not be called data scientist. <laughs> I, mean, I see, I see, I see. But, I but now what, what, what I definitely see uh, in the short term future, like now we have data scientists, we have machine learning engineers, right? So machine learning engineers are putting uh, machine learning models into production, but they could as well do data science as well. So question is if there is a need uh, to consolidate these or could data scientists do the entire intent if uh, good enough machine learning platforms are in place. But what I think would most likely happen, more likely to happen is that uh, data scientists would take more of a data analyst responsibilities, like keeping their responsibilities, but also mm -hmm. more of data analyst responsibilities. Mm -hmm. okay. And then machine learning engineers maybe moving a little bit closer to what taking some of responsibilities that data scientists are now uh, considered that we should be doing, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks. Well, thanks a lot for all the information. Uh, let's jump to the two last questions uh, of the podcast. Uh, and I want you uh, to know that uh, we're very thankful uh, to learning from you. And thanks for coming on, on the show. Uh, it's always a pleasure learning from uh, experienced and expert people like um, like yourself. So the 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 question to to yeah the previous question to your message would be how can people reach out to you? Where can people find you? We discussed it a bit earlier, but can you sum it up? Yeah, so I'm on mostly on LinkedIn, and then LinkedIn mm -hmm. you can find me Aurimas Gretunas. Uh, but I already have this uh, central hub website swirlai.com. So mm -hmm. it hosts links to all of my other social stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can find more about it there. So I do plan to expand the newsletter. There will be a YouTube channel, 100%. Uh, and most likely a sort of a community also coming. Mm -hmm. uh, it could be a private Slack community. I'm not yet 100% sure what it looks mm -hmm. like. But uh, yeah. <laughs> awesome. 
Awesome. Well, thanks again. Would you have a, a message to, to end this episode together? Would you have a message for the Let's Talk AI audience? It could oh. be personal, it could be professional, it could be about MLOps, machine learning, whatever you want. Ah, okay, so maybe something for a professional. So learn fundamentals. I think that uh, it's very important to learn things that do not change independent of the platforms you work on, independent on what uh, the future holds for us, right? So these could be like, when it comes to more technical stuff, learn fundamentals of how distributed compute works. So how the machine learning itself is, on what kind of things the machine learning itself is based on. Uh, system design, how do you stitch up systems independent of what kind of tooling you're using, right? Mm. Uh, business uh, acumen, right? Understand how businesses work, how to bring mm -hmm. value, how to communicate. Mm. So these okay. things will stick. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Well, thanks for everyone who made it uh, to the end with us. We're super happy to 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 have you here on the podcast. The podcast is still uh, growing and feel free to reach out with your questions, the subjects that you want to to approach. Thanks again, Aurimas, for everything the learning you shared is so much valuable. And uh, I'll see you on the newsletter on LinkedIn. And I uh, wish you to have a wonderful day. Maybe one more thing that I forgot to mention. <laughs> All right, for the so, ones who are still here. Yeah, so last week I uh, start. Two weeks ago, I started uh, this uh, Swirl AI Talent, Co Talent Collective, uh, which strives to connect employers with uh, possible employees. So if you are distributed by what's happening in, disturbed by what's happening in the job market, uh, just register and hopefully it will help you somehow. There are more than 200 jobs, data-related jobs in the job board. Yeah, it's also in the central website so mm. there. thanks we'll definitely push uh, this information so if you're still here on the episode you have the information thanks again sorry mas for everything and uh, i'll see you soon yeah bye congrats you've made it to the end i hope you had a great time and that you learned a few things to learn more about ai you can subscribe to my newsletter or check the blog and to support the podcast you can give us a review on apple podcast or spotify you can also share it with two friends, colleagues, or family members that might be interested. I wish you to have a wonderful day. Bye.